there are going to be people along the way who will try to undercut your success or take credit for your accomplishments or your fame. But if you just focus on the work and you don't let those people sidetrack you, someday when you get where you're going, you'll look around and you will know that it was you and the people who love you who put you there. Welcome to the September 6th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. Inspiration comes in many forms. And what you just heard is pop star Taylor Swift's 2016 Grammy speech that people applauded for recognizing what women have long known, namely that they rarely get full credit for their own work. Well, a new exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York is tackling the topic of other trailblazing women who need to be better known and recognized. They're calling them rebel women. These are figures that are now largely forgotten, but were important people in the rough and tumble world of 19th century New York. 15 women are the focus of the exhibition. So I invited curator Marcella Macucci to tell us about some of these fascinating women and their stories. So I asked her, what is a rebel woman? So first, I should just give you just a little bit of background. Mm -hmm. We divide the women in the exhibition into three categories. So the first is political women, so Mm -hmm. women who are stepping into the public sphere, either as um, politicians or social activists. So how common was that? You know, we like to show that it was a bit more common than people thought that it was, right. you know, and there's some obviously very well-known women you, you know, you've heard of the Elizabeth Cady Stantons and the right. Susan B. Anthony's, but you haven't really heard of women like Elizabeth Jennings Graham, for instance. Right. Um, so she comes from a black upper middle class family. Mm-hmm. And in 1854, she's in New York. She's late for church. New York Transit Authority, Fifth Avenue and Broadway. <laughs> She hails a streetcar uh, to to take her to church, and she doesn't mind looking to see if they are, you know, if it is accepting African American passengers because trolley cars in this period are segregated. Wow, even in New York. At that even time. in New York, yes. Yep. So she gets on the trolley car, and the conductor tries to kick her off and says, "No, we're not accepting African American passengers." Right. Uh, and she is very vocal and adamant about the fact that she's not going to get off the train car. Um, so we kind of call her in the exhibition the first Rosa Parks in, wow. in many ways. Yes. So what? how's her story end? I mean, I'm yeah. dying to know now. Well, she uses her connections that she has with the black community. She shares her story at her church. It ends up getting picked up by African-American newspapers, mm-hmm. but also by um, the New York Trib and, and Horace Greeley. And they published this account, and it ends up becoming a really sensational trial. And uh, by 1860, uh, Elizabeth Jennings Graham wins that trial, and she's wow. actually responsible for desegregating train cars. What an incredible story. And that's not even her favorite character on display. That honor belongs to Helen Jewett, who's one of the figures in the show's second category, working women. The one that I would like to focus on is Helen Jewett. And we refer to her in the exhibition as New York's uh, most coveted or most illustrious courtesan. 
So yes, in, in that's quite a title. In layman's terms, she's she's a sex worker. She's a oh, prostitute. Okay. So she comes from Maine. She you know makes it makes her way into New York City. She works in a bunch of different brothels, and she really ends up um, kind of catering to. Uh, a really middle and upper class clientele. She really pulls herself up from the bootstraps um, and she becomes very lucrative in her business mm -hmm. and she really does uh, attain her social and economic freedom. Hmm. And so it's really important for me to tell her story because a lot of people think of prostitution, especially in this period, as being such a shunned profession. Mm -hmm. And it's important to know that for her, she was really able to turn it into a source of power, wow. um, despite you know the, the ostracism or the negative stigma that might have been attached to her career. Uh, and she really is able to break that. And she really does become the woman that you know every woman wants to be and every man wants to be with. So what happened to her? She is actually tragically murdered in 1836. Oh, something sadly don't yes. change. Yeah. Yes, um, allegedly by one of her clients, no less, in the brothel that she was working at. And it becomes a huge, again, sensationalized court case when he ends up going to trial. Uh, he ends up being acquitted. We still really, you know, her death really is still shrouded in mystery. Wow. Yes. Um, but, you know, it really also, we kind of allude to the fact that this is really the introduction of the sensational press in New York City. Wow, that's incredible. So, okay, so now we have a second category. Now, what yes. was the third category? The third category, last but certainly not least, is professional women. So these are women who are stepping into male-designated careers, for mm -hmm. instance, um, finance, um, journalism, medicine, things of this nature. And my favorite woman in this category is Hetty Green. Okay. And she earns the title of the Witch of Wall Street. Yes. Uh, so she ends up inheriting. Uh, right. I've heard this story. Yes, you may have. Yes. You may have. Yes. She's, she's really coming to the service in recent years. Um, some more recent historical works have been written about her. So right. we're, we're working on recovering her story. Um, but Hetty Green inherits millions of dollars from her father when he passes away. And from a very young age, you know, at the age of like 15, she's already really learned how to manage her own finances. And, you know, this is kind of taboo for women in this period to sure. be managed managing their finances. Uh, and she ends up investing a lot of that money, so much so that she becomes not only one of the wealthiest women in New York, but one of the wealthiest people in the nation uh, by the turn of the 20th century. Wow. Mm -hmm. So did, was her was her father a banker? I mean, how does this work? Like, um, what was she inheriting? I think he was like a successful businessman, yeah. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And so now, why was she called the Witch of Wall Street? Right, so she kind of gets this label attached to her um, because she wears dark clothing, uh, she's very tight-pocketed, uh, she's, some people describe her as being very callous and, you know, ruthless, maybe even brazen. Um, but you have to wonder, you know, if she right. is characterized that way because she was that way or because she was considered to be so threatening, you know, because she really is dominating this, this male field of, of finance. And then there's the story of Mary Jones, which is pretty incredible for the era. Probably not what you'd expect to hear the story of Mary Jones. So born a man, but asserted her right to wear feminine attire. She ends up being arrested in 1836 for pickpocketing. And when she shows up to trial, she shows up in uh, in like middle-class decorum. She is the epitome of female attire, but all of the court records say Peter Seawally. And everyone in the courtroom looks at this 
you know, woman that they right. see. And they're right. like, that's not Peter C. Wally. And he's like, no, I'm Mary Jones. Really asserts his rights um, mm. to, to have a feminine identity and to wear feminine attire. Uh, and that we discuss in the exhibition is an example of being one of the first known examples of a transgender or gender variant person in New York history. So what happened? Uh, Mary I, all Jones. of these are like I want the next yeah, chapter yeah, what, absolutely. what's next uh, Mary Jones who I should also mention was African American mm-hmm. uh, so not only breaking gender binaries but racial binaries as well ends up being found guilty at that court date and mm. is sentenced to five years for larceny in Sing Sing wow mm-hmm. and then after she came out we only have one other record in uh, whatever public record that we have of Mary Jones still in existence. Uh, and she is found in the papers 10 years later as another moniker, Beefsteak Pete. Uh, yes, which is a little weird, but I'll explain it to you. Um, Beefsteak Pete was um, arrested once again uh, for pretending to use a slab of beef as a female genitalia. Wow. Okay, we can read into that. It's a. I know. I told you it was a little weird, but um, again, once again, you know, this is like a, a sordid history that we're that we're just now beginning to learn more about. That's pretty incredible. Uh, so when she was taken to prison, I'm guessing she had to present as a man. Yes. Right. So it was a man's prison. Uh, it was a man's prison, yeah. um, but we don't have any record. We don't know if he still went by Mary Jones when he wasn't when he was incarcerated. We don't wow. know. Wow, this is like a lot of shrouded in mystery. I know. Even I know. With you. So it must be frustrating though doing this kind of research and you kind of hit these walls all the time. Absolutely, especially doing a public history exhibition on women that you know, so many of whom didn't leave records of their own, it becomes really difficult sometimes to really uncover their stories and and learn about them. Uh, A way for us to kind of get around that was, you know, to obviously look at some some records that we might have to really do some deep deep digging to find them, Um, but also look at some archetypes of women, especially working women. So we, we investigate that a little bit as well, especially with Irish domestic servants and also with like the factory girl or the Bowery gal. Did anything unite these powerful women? Yes, absolutely. Um, There's, I think, a common strand amongst all of them. The thread that ties them together is that they were, in some way, for some reason, labeled as rebels in this period. Hmm. Um, Now, was that a negative? Because, I mean, you know, it's like rebels doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation. But, like, in that way, was it intended that way? I would say yes, in this period it was, because they really were defying gender standards that women were defined by in that period. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think of this period, you think of the constraints on Victorian womanhood in this period. You think of women in, you know, corsets and tight-fitting gloves and parasols, and they're the paragons of virtue and the domestic housewife, you know. They aren't supposed to be the politicians and the actresses and the Mm stockbrokers and the prostitutes, you know. Um, Each of these women really stepped out of that box. So now what kind of records did they leave? I mean, this seems like a lot of really difficult Mm -hmm. work. For the political women, it's much more obvious, right? They have political records. For the working women, much less obvious. So we find them in records like court records, Mm -hmm. for instance. Um, We find them in Helen Jewett, for instance, who I spoke about earlier, had written correspondence. She would write to her clients, and that's how she maintained her relationships with her clients. So we can glean, you know, her voice from those records. Any artists or anybody in the arts that you think might stand out? Um, We do look at Ada Isaacs Mencken, who was an actress, 
uh, and kind of one of the forerunners of the like the bohemian movement. So she had you know really short cropped hair. She smoked cigarettes. What era is this? Um, this is in eighteen like eighteen forties into the sixties. Wow, short mm-hmm. cropped hair in the eighteen forties. Short cropped hair, yes, um, and ran in the same circles as like Charles Dickens and Walt Whitman in New York. Um, Walt Whitman actually inspired a lot of her poetry. We have one of her poems on display, uh, a handwritten Ada Isaacs Macon poem that we have from our theater collection. But yeah, there was a lot of negative stigma attached to her as well, which, you know, really wasn't helped by the fact that she also had a lot of like pro-Jewish views. She promoted women's rights, specifically a woman's right to divorce. Yeah, so she she was kind of a rebel in every sense of the word. So she was outspoken. Yes, absolutely. So now, is that something else they all share, being outspoken? In a certain way, yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, especially for the working women who we might not have their voices, Mm -hmm. you can still assume that they were outspoken because just by living and working in a public sphere that wasn't intended for them, they really were stepping out into, you know, a a new world and a new climate. And let's not forget that 19th century New York wasn't exactly the safest place for women. It was incredibly dangerous for women, so much so that a middle upper class white woman wasn't really supposed to even be walking around New York City um, wow. unaccompanied, right? Hmm. Um, or really at all. Uh, we don't really see those women stepping out, doing things like shopping, for instance, at, you know, uh, AT, you know, like different department, department stores. Store, yeah. Sure. We don't really even see that until the latter half of the 19th century. So, really, in the 1840s and through the 60s, yeah, women were expected to be domestic, to stay in the private sphere. Uh, and we don't really see the other side of that, which is so many women who were living and working in the public sphere, who were walking alone every day to work, to, you know, to work right. at the factory or, to be a seamstress. And we don't really hear those stories as often. Thanks so much, Marcella. Thank you so much for having me. That was Marcella Micucci, the curator of Rebel Women, Defying Victorianism, which continues until January 6, 2019 at the Museum of the City of New York. So now I'm going to invite Patty Johnson fellow critic, blogger, also the host of Explain Me Art Podcast. Hi, Patty. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so I, you're going to join me so we can go through a couple of headlines before we segue to the interview with you and William Powhida. How's that sound? Sounds great. Ready. Okay. So now some Salvador Mundi news. I mean, I know how much you love that, Patty, Salvador Mundi news. So, <laughs> yes. so now the infamous painting from the Italian Renaissance, which continues to be the subject of divergent expert opinions. Well, scholars haven't only been casting doubt on the authorship of Leonardo da Vinci themselves, particularly how much he contributed to the final product. Now, Patty, what's your take on Salvador Mundi? Oh, do I think it's a... a Is it a Leonardo? I mean, I, I almost don't even care, right? Okay. Like it's okay. That's because fair. I mean, it, it just shouldn't have caught. It shouldn't have sold for that much money. Okay, but aside from the money, what do you think? The crystal ball doesn't impress you. None of those little things. No. No. Okay. Well, anyway, so the debate up until now has been about how much of the painting Leonardo has was involved with. Now, a scholar named Jeremy Wood is speculating about the provenance of the painting. So up until now, a lot of people were saying it was in the collection of King Charles I, but now he's saying it could have been owned by a British nobleman in the 17th century. 
Right, which I guess means that its its value has diminished a little bit well, since I mean, it's you know, sold it's not... for some ungodly amount at well, auction. Well, I, I mean, now I think the money pretty much decides. You know, I don't think it because it wasn't the King's collection. People aren't like, oh, it just went down in value. I mean, do you think? Well, I mean, I don't really understand... <laughs> I don't really un- understand how the value is accrued in the first place since the whole thing seemed to rely on marketing like the the huge marketing effort well, of the auction house it seems true. like you know this would be a notch down in the marketing my favorite part of the whole marketing was how they branded it as a da vinci which if you know italian just means someone from vinci like it doesn't <laughs> it's not even you know it's like saying you know you know the new yorker you know yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Anyway, but I mean that sort of reminds me of the Warhol uh, like rating system too. You could get like an A, B, or C, and if something it's like was New York sort restaurants. of yeah, if if something was sort of you couldn't tell what it was, you just gave it a B, and you never talked about the rating. So do you care about the ratings at New York restaurants? When I go, when I see a B, I don't stop going to the restaurant. Do you? Uh, maybe a little bit. Okay. I mean, I, I think it just means, I mean, isn't it just a clen- cleanliness rating? I, I didn't guess, think- but I mean, there's some really good restaurants that get bees sometimes. I don't get it. Anyway. I think so. it's who you pay off, which. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've gone straight cynical. Okay. So let's just get back to this. So up until now, they thought, we thought the painting was possibly made for Leonardo's patron, King Louis Twelfth of France and his consort, Anne of Brittany and who most likely commissioned it from the artist soon after the French conquest of Milan around 1500. So this puts that all up for grabs now. So just so you know. And the painting, which was set to be unveiled at the Louvre Abu Dhabi on September 18th, well, the museum just tweeted that that's been delayed. So, <laughs> so I mean, you know, you may pay almost half a billion dollars for a painting, but I guess you can't even get a proper provenance, can you? <laughs> it's a pretty expensive provenance. Okay, next, the Western Australian government is pursuing world heritage status for the Barra Peninsula. Now, this region has actually some of the most ancient rock art in the world, some of it dating back... Th- 30,000 plus years. And it's a sacred site for various Aboriginal groups. So five months ago, the Australian Senate issued a report detailing the rock arts risk of degradation by local industries, fossil fuel emission. Now, there are more than a million catalog petroglyphs at the site, believe it or not. And so this is a pretty big deal. And I mean, the newest petroglyphs are carved as recently as the early 1800s before the Yaburara people, the artists, were killed off and driven off the land in a period of sustained killings in 1868 known as the Flying Foam Massacre. So now what does world heritage status mean? Well, it means that it gets a certain amount of funding and preserve status so that people can't necessarily go to the site and you know it kind of overrides like a lot take of the home others. tourist attraction <laughs> take home <laughs> tourists or like development you can't have a right-wing government show up and decide to like sell everything off i think there's a whole bureaucratic hurdle that happens okay and this happens internationally so the funding comes from some sort of international pool of money set aside for world heritage status right though i don't things. know how though i don't know how necessarily useful it is considering italy hasn't been so good about taking care of its sites 
Um, they have so many of them, as you've probably witnessed yes. firsthand. Yeah. So, um, and then the New York City Culture Pass program. Now, have you used that yet, Patty? Because you can do it with your New York City library card. I haven't, and that is because I also do not have a New York City library card. Okay, you got to get on that. I actually went and got my Brooklyn library card a couple of weeks ago. I renewed it after this program was announced. Now, it turns out that the program has been in such high demand that museums are upping their number of free tickets for users. The Guggenheim is now offering 200 tickets a month rather than 100, and the Museum of Modern Art has more than doubled its initial offering of 400 tickets to now offer 1,000 monthly tickets. That's a lot. That's a lot of free access. Yeah, that's great. That's great news, particularly after the big hike um, in the admission prices. So I'm, I'm relieved to see a little bit, though I'd like those numbers to be a little higher. I mean, I have to say that a thousand dollars compared to a thousand tickets. Yeah. Or yeah, sorry, a thousand tickets compared to the the abolishment of free admission is really kind of small potatoes but you know i'll take what i can get but totally and then this one i think artists need to know about this one the united states mint has announced a call for artists to design a special set of coins and medals applicants must be citizens of the u.s that that disqualifies both of us yeah When um, more details can be followed on the U.S. Mint Gov website, um, winning artists have to be at least 18 years old, have at least five years of experience in the field, and will be paid a set fee per assignment and earn a bonus of five thousand dollars per design selected for minting. That's a lot. That's, that's great. That's pretty. That's yeah. pretty great. So now, Patty, you and William. We're going to be talking about the fall season and your Explain Me podcast. So should we get started? Yeah, absolutely. So we have artist William Pauheida and critic Patty Johnson in the studio. They're the co-hosts of Explain Me, which is a podcast that deals with the intersection of art, money, and politics. Hi, you two. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Explain Me? I mean, because you guys have been doing this podcast now for about a year and a half, two years. How long has it been? I'd say a year squarely right now. Yeah, just a year. Okay. And then you guys have been like doing deep dives and everything from like, why don't you give people a flavor? Well, I think typically we talk about uh, certain news events that have been in the news that are getting a lot of attention or maybe things that we think have not gotten enough attention. What are we most excited about this fall in New York? Oh, well, I'm going to start because uh, the Conspiracy Theory show at the Met just sounds amazing. It's called Everything is Connected art and conspiracy and the show is sort of divided into two parts one is sort of the secret seekers for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. artists who are using original documents to uh suss out truths that might not be immediately apparent so we're talking like trevor paglin jenny holzer hans Hacke, that sort of thing and then we have the other half of the show which is like artists who really go down the rabbit hole and look at culture so and where where conspiracy lives there so that's like jim shaw mike kelly that sort of thing it feels like a departure for the met doesn't it to do a show like this i don't know what do you think william well i am a little bit surprised that the met would do this show um and i didn't know it was coming up and when patty mentioned it my first question was is mark lombardi in that show he is yeah 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 definitely um I don't 
don't know if it's that unusual for them because, I mean, how much programming does the Met Brower have yet under their belt? Right. That's true. That's a good point. I mean, I guess the Mark Lombardi, the famous story, of course, of the post 9-11, where somebody shows up from one of the intelligence services at at the Whitney and asks to see a Mark Lombardi drawing that connect that uh, discusses the bin laden family and the bushes and all these other things so i mean like you know is that does anyone know if that story is actually true i've heard a, a variation on it that they maybe showed up at the whitney and uh when they i thought it was actually in an exhibition of his uh drawings and when they were asked like these men from home the department of homeland security why they were there they the i think the institution thought they might be in trouble or that there was some like somebody wanted to censor them and the men said no this is information we're not aware of so they were there to actually learn from the drawings so there was this, this here's the urban lore because i heard that they showed up and the the curators brought the piece out for them <laughs> so this is like which is true yeah, I, don't I, I don't know i don't know, know. we probably this. have to like you know contact joe Ammerheim at pierogi and find out but the one i'm excited about is sarah ann johnson's piece um the house on fire so that that's the piece she created about her a grandmother's unwitting participation in a cia funded brainwashing experiment at mcgill university in the 50s i mean like talk about the stuff of like nightmares <laughs> Um, it turns out, I think they were like, she was paranoid for a while about like these sort of hallucinations. And then it turned out that it was all true. And it was a CIA funded project. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, the fact that Matt is showing this, I mean, I have to say, like, it does feel like a different museum a little bit. Yeah, I, you know, I, I in the studio, I'm actually working on a, a drawing right now. And one of the things that I'm sort of putting in the drawing is the fact that, you know, uh, the, the Koch brothers who funded uh, the Tea Party back in the aughts, you know, uh, the fact that the Met has the David Koch Plaza, That's right. you know, after his giant donation. Um, I, you know, I would love it if the Met had some self-awareness and they could tie in some of their own, you know, relationship to wealth and power and conspiracy. Yeah. What would that look like? What do you guys think that would look like for, for an institution like the Met to do? Bring in Occupy Museums. Oh, that's a good one. Well, you know, that's that's a good one. Okay, let's see. What else? What else is going on at the Met we could talk about? I'm excited about the Diker collection. First time they're putting Native American objects in the American wing. They're doing that this fall for the first time ever. That's really cool. And then there's the big Armenia show, which people won't stop talking to me about. I'm like so tired of it already. It's like, yeah, I get it. You want me to review it. You know, <laughs> I'm like the token Armenian critic or something. Um, so now what other things are you excited about? The Soul of the Nation at the Brooklyn Museum? I had not heard of that. Oh, that's the big, like, the, the show about um, black art that was at the Tate and it's coming here. You might have heard of. Um, then how about, like, uh, how about, now, how about the open studio events? Gowanus has open studios this fall. Bushwick has open studios this fall. Are you guys excited about open studios? No. No. Um, <laughs> Why? A, it's a lot of stuff to sort through. Uh, I think curation actually does help. Uh, the average viewer, the you know, I would say the show that I'm really looking forward to uh, out in Queens is the Queens International at the Queens Museum. Oh right, you know that's a. What but is no it, one's having no one's having weird Triennial. thoughts post Laura Reykjavik. Uh I mean possibly. I 
who took I mean, over? she's not the curator. I, yeah. But. Um, who's, did they hire a new director of the museum? No, I don't think no. they have yet. They haven't yet. I'm just wondering, like, what does that mean when, like, you know, there's this animosity? I mean, there was that really nasty op-ed in the Daily News after Laura left. You guys remember that? That yeah. was so nasty. Uh, yeah, and speaking of museum boards, I mean, it just seems to represent the kind of struggle that we've been watching play out at various institutions where the boards often represent very conservative political perspectives and mm -hmm. you have directors who have very radical progressive political perspectives and Laura's you know sort of departure from the museum seemed to be uh, over Palestine right you know Israel Palestine well I, I mean, mean that was part of it I uh, will yeah, say though more complicated, that, but yeah like with this show though they are collaborating with the Queen's Library so they're gonna be in multiple locations um, and uh, the only name I recognized, and this may uh, not reflect well on me, but like I recognize the name of Jack Witten, um, but everyone else, I, I Jack Witten's in the Queen's International. Yeah, that doesn't make. Any I don't really sense. understand. That but... seems like a board member <laughs> dropping. <laughs> I was like, what? Their, that their doesn't Jack even make Witten sense. Wait, Jack Witten also has a big sculpture show at the Met this fall, right? Yeah. Which I am looking forward yes. to. I yeah, think that's so, going to be great. Okay, that's bizarre so um right but let's get let's get past that and to the <laughs> core point which is there's a whole bunch of artists that i haven't heard of and I okay think probably that's exciting yes yeah, so that's always good that's that, always good i yeah, know we, we get excited about that but that was also like the same reaction i had to the new museum's triennial i was like right. wow i don't know anyone on this list this is sort of exciting and then we were both sort of underwhelmed you're like the there's a reason sometimes <laughs> Touche, <laughs> but, but I am going to hold on to my hope. Okay, well, and okay. See what I have a couple of others. Warhol at the Whitney this fall. Uh, Does anyone care? No, no, no. no. Okay, there, I don't think there should be. I, I have a lot of moratorium respect and love for moratorium the Warhol Foundation. Warhol. Yep. You know, and what they've been doing, but I don't need to see another Warhol show. Right? Like, I don't understand who is that for. I guess Americans, that it's a it's, right? it's a crowd well, like if you go, crowd pleaser. If you go to museums in Europe, you see like a fraction of the amount of Warhols. The only people who care about Warhol are you know Americans and like board members. Okay, Martha Rossler at the Jewish Museum this fall. Yes, I. You're excited you about that? For, I want. Yeah. I want yeah, to I think that's going to be good. Awesome. I think she's very important artist. How about the Charles White show at MoMA? Anybody excited? Mm. Not yet. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, Sarah Lucas at the New Museum. I I like her work. I like I, gags. I think. I love those mattresses where that look look like people about to have sex. That vagina that's just a pail is hilarious <laughs> to me. Okay, okay, we're but looking forward to vagina you're pail. Familiar with the work, so maybe yep. that's a show we can uh, review on the podcast. Totally. Yeah. So now, how about the um, let's see the video sculpture show at the Sculpture Center? You guys excited about that? Nineteen seventy four to ninety five. I don't often get out to the Sculpture Center. Okay. Um, I. That's just not my favorite time period of video, to be quite well, honest. And, and speaking, so what's your favorite period of video? That's an <laughs> that's a detail I want to dig into. Post YouTube. Oh, of course, uh, that is YouTube. Really, is your specialty? Well, I I like it. That's right. <laughs> so, you were saying, William? Um, you know, I guess speaking of video and 
museum shows that it might be interested in seeing, but Bruce Nauman uh, has the Disappearing Acts show coming up at MoMA, um, yep. which is a show that I think I'm MoMA going... MoMA PS1. Yeah, MoMA PS1 that I think I'm going to go see. Yep. And I'm not a huge, huge fan of Nauman, but I do think that... I really like the idea of Bruce Nauman, so I plan on seeing So that. what do you like about the idea of Bruce Nauman? Like, what is it? Because I get that. I totally understand where you're coming from. But, you know, it's like, is it the idea that somebody... Like, what is it? So some of the conceptual games that he plays at sort of like being an artist or an artist position in kind of space. Mm-hmm. What I what I always find, though, is I'm a little underwhelmed with the results of like going to sit in a four-channel video of kind of being in his studio space mm-hmm. or uh, that piece where you kind of walk down the hall and see the back of your head as you move forward. And I think he's an, sort of an important artist, so I'll be curious if I actually find the physical manifestation of his ideas to be as engaging as some of the ideas of Bruce Nauman. But before they left, I had to ask Patty what she misses about the online art world of yesteryear. So what's the thing you miss the most about the art world online from 10 years ago, Patty? Because you're a veteran of the art world online, so you're the person to ask. I mean, my favorite thing was that there used to be this thing when you were online because not everybody was right Mm -hmm. and you'd meet somebody who is like another like I would meet you on the street for the first time Mm -hmm. and it would be like a joy it would there would be this like little freak out on the street you'd be super excited Edward Winkleman at one point had like a get-together for all the bloggers which at that point could like fit into a room these were the people who were online and active right and like it there was this kind of energy and excitement and genuine happiness to engage with people and their ideas i remember the first time i met you it was at barry and james's apartment oh that's right you know and i was like oh my god you're patty johnson (laughs) i was like i was legitimately thrilled to meet you after you know after all that i was like who is this person well, I mean, I remember that time, too, because, like, I was able to meet people that I hadn't met before. And, like, I, you know, I, had, I hadn't met you before. And you you are the only person I knew who could consume as much news as <laughs> as you did. You had this, like, what was it? It wasn't a Tumblr, but it was, like, a like blog, blog, blog roll. Or blog, a link roll. A link roll that had more news than I could possibly consume ever. And that, you know, and then like from that, I always thought like hyperallergic made a lot of sense because you you have a broader range of interests than the average art person. And that's what's required to run a good art magazine, in my well, thank opinion. thank you to say so. But you know, yeah. you were such a pioneer in the field too, to have like this opinionated, you know, subjective opinion that both loved art, but got really irritated and had to tell someone. Yeah, no, I, it's part of my personality. <laughs> it's definitely Well, part you of inspired, my you inspired so many bloggers, Patty, and I think a lot of people know that. Oh, thank you. So that was really, it was real. Well, you still inspire. So, and I'm sure people will tune in to explain me to hear some of your um, opinions today. Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, this is sort of the thing, the thing that's missing uh, that was there in the 
um, in the beginning was the kind of optimism, you know, explain me as, as a little bit more cynical after. Right. Well, we're all going to die. Years. We all know yeah. that. Well, so on that note, thanks, Patty. <laughs> thanks for having me in. See you online. All right. So you heard us discuss the infamous Mark Lombardi drawing at the Whitney incident. I had to find out if it was true. So I called Progi Gallery that represents the estate and spoke to Joe Arnheim, who is the person that would know. And guess what? He told me that in fact, someone from the intelligence community did indeed call him during that period. And he told him that the drawing was at the Whitney. And according to him, someone did go to the Whitney to look at the drawing that wasn't on display at the time. And it turns out that the people that were there were not only interested in the information, though they were certainly interested in that, but also in the formation and how, as Joe said it, how he laid it out in a cohesive way. The drawing in question is untitled 1996 and deals with the BCCI scandal that happened in the late 20th century. So at least one little piece of that mystery has been solved. This week, I want to send a special thanks to Twig Twig for providing the music to this week's episode. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week. And